and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, both of my co-hosts, Medea Ocher and Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. And Hi, Eric. Kate. Hi, it's been so long since we've all been on the Zoom together. I know, it's true. It feels like I haven't seen both of you at the same time in quite some time. Yeah. We had a good gossip session that we can't share with listeners, but just know <laughs> it was there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you can feel it beneath these uh, <laughs> opening these words. Pro- yeah, these professional undertones mask high gossip rate. Oh. <laughs> okay, let's get to this show. This was a really exciting show that we were all on. Another first for a while. And we spoke with one of my absolute favorite filmmakers, Todd Haynes, about his new documentary, The Velvet Underground. Yeah, I mean, it was for all of us, I think it's a big thrill to speak with Todd Haynes. And the documentary is so great. I mean, it's very classic Todd Haynes in the sense that it is beautiful and challenging to watch, but also takes you inside of a story that you think you know, but gives you so many more different angles to enter into it. Yeah, I'm also a very big fan. I taught safe at UCLA for a couple of years, which was really fun because I would get to watch it over and over and watch undergrads experience it anew. And yeah, this documentary is so interesting because there's brand new archival footage Mm -hmm. that I think nobody has seen before. And I've been listening to The Velvet Underground maybe for the last week. Have you guys? No Um, pressure. In my head. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, 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 but I remember, yeah, oh, I love the Velvet Underground. I don't, I haven't listened to them for a while. I also love Nico. Chelsea Girls is, is such a good album. Yeah. And um, I gotta, that I've been hearing that in my, it's like already so imprinted on my brain. I don't even really need to listen to the actual album, but I should. Yeah, the movie, it's like, of course, Todd Haynes makes a documentary and ends up just making like the most playful, excitingly visual, formal, piece that it doesn't even seem like a straight doc even it seems exactly inspired a lot by some of the experimental film that is quoted in the film he incorporates some of the formal techniques of it like the the warhol split screen yeah and those and all of those techniques as you're talking about kate um they really make you feel immersed in the world and time of the Velvet Underground, which I think is one of many real achievements of this documentary. And it was fascinating to talk to Todd about that technique and also about the kind of avant-garde cinema, art, and music that he grew up with and which inspired a lot of his work, you know, as an avant-garde filmmaker in his own right. Well, let's listen to it. Let's do it. We're thrilled to be speaking today with the director, Todd Haynes. His films include well-loved and critically lauded modern classics, such as Superstar, Safe, Far From Heaven, I'm Not There, and Carol. He joins us to speak about his latest movie and his first documentary, The Velvet Underground. The Velvet Underground shows just how the group became a cultural touchstone, representing a range of contradictions. The band is both of their time, yet timeless, rooted in high art and underground culture. 
The film features in-depth interviews with the key artistic players of the 1960s, combined with a treasure trove of never-before-seen performances and a rich collection of recordings, Warhol films, and other experimental art that creates an immersive experience into what founding Velvet Underground member John Cale describes as the band's creative ethos, how to be elegant and how to be brutal. Welcome to the show, Todd. Thanks. Your new film, The Velvet Underground, is a beautiful and often dreamlike documentary that kind of moves between all the major players in the band with like really great archival. So I wanted to start off by asking you what attracted you to the project from kind of a filmmaking or a storytelling perspective, and then also to ask you a little bit about any of the challenges that you had in terms of bringing this like really rich story to the screen. What attracted me, obviously, was first and foremost the music, the band that meant so much to my own sort of creative origins and upbringing and or coming of age, I guess. But what attracted me to doing it as a documentary, some people say, why wouldn't you consider doing it as a dramatic movie or something, is exactly what the limitations were, which were anything but limiting because this is a band that doesn't exist in any of the traditional you know visual formats that we expect in rock concert footage or promotional footage or all those kinds of things they exist in the films of Andy Warhol they exist within the cinema and the artistic culture of New York City at this specific time and place and they're not just it's not just Warhol. They had all of these very close and productive or foundational relationships with all of these other experimental filmmakers like Jack Smith and Piero Helixer and Barbara Rubin and Marie Menken. And so this was the only way to visualize their story. They also, the photo archives are just among the most beautiful in the history of popular music. You know, they're just extraordinary. So this was an incredibly fertile world that was begging for me, in my way, in my brain, to be used to make this film something that you see as much as you hear, and that the images could make you sort of see the music and see the time and place in ways that are just... I cannot think of another band where this would be the raw material that a director gets to work with. Yeah, certainly the movie ends up being a portrait of a larger American avant-garde tradition, you know, featuring Jonas Mikas and, you know, Andy Warhol, but not in the pop sense, more in the challenging nature of his work, Lamonti Young. Is that something that was on your mind from the outset in your attraction to the Velvet Underground? Or is that something that you wanted to portray in the film from the beginning? It was absolutely in my mind from the outset for the reasons I was just describing that it was the only way to find a visual language. You know, I'm making a film about a band. So I want to find the way to make it a visual experience for an audience. And that's true for me when I'm making a dramatic film about that happens to be about musical subjects as well. It's like trying to find the visual language that best gets to the root of what the music and what the culture of that musician and that artist was really about and trying to find or you know genres and references to cinema or influences from cinema that matter to that story that in my mind can only be told 
can only be expressed this one way. So that was embedded in the Velvet Underground with these filmmakers. And so, like, again, as I say, it was the only way to show the band and it was the only way to show the time and the ideas that define the time, the creative sort of infectious ideas that were sort of cross-pollinating from medium to medium and artist to artist. And is that an important tradition to you personally? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, anytime creative orthodoxies, creative conventions are being questioned, that's healthy. That's how we make change and we move forward in the medium that we're looking at. When conventions and orthodoxies are not questioned, we just repeat what's been done before and we don't even think about it. So the 60s was a time when almost everything was being questioned. But what's also really lovely about what was happening in New York is that the questioning was going on sort of outside of intellectual sort of strategies. And Andy Warhol had this remarkable way of sort of pretending that what he was doing was just for fun. But what he was doing was making us think about what art meant in a new way. And he wanted everybody else to tell you that it was serious. It wasn't his job to tell you that it was serious. And that's also a really remarkable thing. And in fact, I find that when this band and this team of crazy people went to the West Coast, the pretensions that were associated with hippie you know, revelation and self-discovery and political change and all that stuff <laughs> that they kind of call into question and take the piss out of a bit, were way more pretentious, way more subject to being caught out in hypocrisies than the sort of freedom and the kind of humorous camp pop attitude that defined New York in the 60s. It sounds like you went into this film sort of embracing the constraint of the archival footage. Was there something about it? And when you dove into it, that surprised you that you weren't expecting to find? I was not expecting to find so much footage of people eating bananas. That was really weird. (laughs) Um, Was there something about it that you just didn't expect? Well, I didn't find it constraining at all. I found it to be absolutely limitless. We had hundreds of hours of material that we had to call through and pour through because each of the filmmakers, and there's countless numbers of filmmakers that we include in this film, were doing very different kinds of work. They all were working outside of conventional narrative filmmaking, but they were all doing it with very different stylistic signatures. And so what Jack Smith was doing looked utterly different from what Andy Warhol was doing and what Kenneth Anger was doing looked utterly different from what Stan Brackage was doing. And they were all depicted in this movie and they, we all found a way to use the different languages, the different visual languages that came from these different artists as a way to describe not just the conceptual climate that was infectious and that was generative and was spreading ideas from one medium to the next, from Lamont Young's drones to Andy Warhol's first sustained films that played with duration in similar ways, but also the different temperatures and temperaments of the records themselves, which for a band as this influential and signature, a band as the Velvet Underground, 
their four records are really utterly different in tone and style. So things were happening very quickly in the 1960s, and people were exhausting ideas very quickly and moving on to the next idea very quickly. This was something I explored in my Bob Dylan film, I'm Not There, which for me necessitated having many different Bob Dylans who kept killing the last one off to keep up with the experimentation and the innovation that was going on in this creative mind, but also that was going on in the world around him as well. So the filmmakers and their styles lent all of the specific color and texture and different kinds of rhythms to the music as it kept changing. One thing I wanted to ask you about also, Todd, is that this is kind of almost like a hacky studio exec question, the like the why now? Because, you know, as you're talking about, you know, Dylan and this time capsule that you bring us to and this unique foment in New York that you're talking about, how do you think these moments and the sphere of influence that you're able to capture in the film kind of speak to us in the present? I don't know. All I know is I think we need it now more than ever. I think we need to look at the spirit of avant-garde questioning, the desire to throw away old models, old languages, and to look for new ways of communicating, expressing ourselves now more than ever, because I just don't see a lot of that happening today. I think we need to look at a time when people were physically smashed together in a geography that is really how artistic movements always seem to occur in the past is by a geographical specificity to time and place and to people literally hanging out and going out together and doing this together and doing that together. And again, that's something that's harder today to imagine in our digital culture, incredibly hard to imagine after a pandemic, all the sort of forces of technology and corporate you know, how captured we are by the corporate languages that we live within. We're only furthered by COVID in ways of isolating people from people and pulling us away from each other and feeling like you don't trust the person next door to you for all kinds of reasons that even preceded COVID. The Trump era was pushing people away from each other and stirring up contempt for different kinds of people all the time. This was a a time in which people were really interested in each other and really interested in their differences. And even if the Velvet Underground had to play tough and sort of throw some shade at other artists around them, that's also part of creative risk-taking, where you say, no, you reject what's around you and you say, no, I'm doing something different. And I think even that rejection is important from a creative standpoint where you resist the pull for being famous or being liked or being accepted or something. You take a risk about being like everybody else. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Todd Haynes about his new film, The Velvet Underground. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. happy to have Calafacene back on the line with us today. His new book is called Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. And he's here to give us a book recommendation. It's true. I am. Hi, Kate. Good to be oh, back hi. with you. So I'm going to recommend one of my favorite works of music criticism, 
which is I'm with the Band, Confessions of a Groupie. It's a 1987 memoir by Pamela DeBar, who spent lots of time kind of hanging out in the Los Angeles scene as rock star culture as we know it was just starting to emerge. And, you know, when this book was published in 1987, it's like the height of the hair metal moment. And people, I think, you know, liked it. It was a bestseller. It was a big hit. But I think people thought of it as like kind of a fun, fluffy book. But it's really smart. And it's a really intelligent and really acute description of what rock stardom is and how it works and what this aura is that rock musicians have around them. And, and rock stardom ends up being so central to rock and roll music. And rock stardom, as she defines it, didn't really exist in the same way in the 60s. And, and the idea that really becomes dominant in the 70s, that rock stardom is a thing and it has to do with debauchery and excitement and danger and sex and all these things that end up becoming central to the way we think about rock and roll. It sometimes seems that rock star as an idea is going to outlive rock and roll as a genre, right? You have you have hip hop songs about about rock star, right? And you have you know corporate executives and and athletes described as rock stars. And so, and she really gets something right, I think, about how the music created this mythology around itself for better and for worse and how this mythology ended up kind of swallowing the genre and sort of swallowing culture whole and how it could be it could be inspiring it could be exploitative she's actually really clear-eyed about the the transactional nature of her relationship with a lot of these musicians what she was getting out of it what they were getting out of it it's a really fascinating and also fun book that kind of takes you back to a moment that in some ways is similar to our current moment and in some ways is a totally different world. And how did you first come to the book? I think I've read it probably sometime in the 90s and enjoyed it. And then when I was writing my own book and was looking to think about the ways in which people thought about rock and roll in the in the 60s and 70s, I came back to it and I was really I was kind of blown away because she intersperses her 1987 view of what was happening with her diary entries. So you can kind of watch her going from this kid watching rock and roll on TV to this young woman hanging out at the clubs and meeting these people that she was watching on TV only a few years before. And so it creates this feeling that a lot of great books do of getting just like sucked into this world. And you can feel this almost this sense of acceleration as she goes from being a fan to being like in the movie, as it were, that she'd been reading about. Great book. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us the title and the author one more time? Sure. It's called I'm With the Band, Confessions of a Groupie. It's a memoir that was first published in 1987 by Pamela DeBar. Thanks so much, Kalifa. We've been speaking with Sene. His new book is Major Labels, a history of popular music in seven genres. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Todd Haynes, director of the Velvet Underground. It's interesting because it also seems like in the film that Lou Reed from the very beginning, knew he wanted to be a huge star, that he wanted to be a rock star, that he wanted fame and he wanted money. And yet 
it wouldn't seem that he took the steps necessarily artistically to accrue those things. So maybe you could talk about that and just in, in terms of him as kind of being the center of the film, um, the, those conflicting impulses that he had. Yeah, I think conflicting impulses is, is exactly it. I think he was full of a lot of contradictions and conflicting impulses and desires. And that conflict is something that people have always described about Lou Reed as a person, as an interview subject by journalists, a sense that he was kind of had to fight back and create sort of protective barriers from the people around him. But but there was always something you know, trying to cross boundaries and forge new ideas. And he wrote heroin when he was in high school. I mean, that is just phenomenal to me. And so you see this guy almost fully intact with his sort of underground instincts, his queer curiosity, his antisocial kind of sense that that real art is going to have to upset the society. And then you also see his desire for success and fame. And those are all at play in this guy his whole life. Uh, It's almost like David Bowie, but David Bowie also wanted to draw from art and literature and theater and pantomime and music hall and, and bands from the U.S. like the Velvet Underground and the Stooges to inform his music. But he also wanted to be famous. And that strange combustion of a lot of conflicting ideas enabled him to actually succeed in all of that and then kind of hit the fame wall at certain points of his career and go, "Uh oh, I think I've lost something here. I got to go the other way now, you know? So continuing to explore and continuing to be restless as a creative person in their whole life. And I think Lou Reed was similar in that way. Something that's really interesting about the movie is that you explore Lou Reed's queerness in depth, particularly in the very beginning of the film. But I was wondering about how you think about it and how you think about what you called the queerness of the of the Velvet Underground as a group. What does that mean for you? What it means for me is that it embodied a larger sort of aesthetic outlook and sort of cultural attitude with regard to heteronormativity or definitely other aspects of the counterculture, which is what they sort of confronted when they went to the West Coast and found the hippie culture, which wasn't just in the West Coast, it was all over the country, was probably a much more familiar out manifestation of 60s, you know, alternative cultures. They found it sort of bourgeois and sort of uptight and kind of homophobic and kind of regenerative of sexual difference just with a new cast. It was still like the Earth Mother who would be taking care of the hippie man, rubbing his feet and baking baking muffins and all that. You know, it wasn't really changing uh, sexual difference. And and it wasn't really looking at feelings of conflict that people might have within themselves that get manifest in all kinds of different ways of exploring things that aren't all, they don't always make you feel good. The Velvet Underground risked delving into subject matter 
and I think frailty and and also you know to a large degree and I think this continued with glam rock and punk rock they were sort of deconstructing masculinity itself and looking at ways that masculine models were um, vulnerable and not connected to power inherently and or, or letting rejecting power as a model for how to express yourself as a man. And I think that all of that was just not what was being explored in all of the amazing stuff that was new in the 1960s. This still was different and this still scared people, remained in the margins for a long time. As you get towards the end of the documentary, you know, you naturally will talk about the dissolution of of the band. And as you're talking about, you know, the stuff that you were saying with regard to queerness and so much of this documentary is about drones, duration, time, film, all of that. Um, you know, do you see that that dissolution as inevitable, right? In order to keep the same charge of risk taking that you're talking about is so vital. Um, you know, do you see that their breakup was inevitable or could it have gone a different way? No, I sort of do. I think Danny Field talks about that as well, that there that this was an unsustainable moment. It's what made it all the more special, all the more risky, all the more sort of hang off the precipice, you know, really going somewhere boldly that no one had gone before, but not something that could be packaged and repeated. And even the volatility that they felt toward the world around them was ultimately going to invade their cocoon and be felt between the two creative sort of founders of the band, John Cale and Lou Reed. And that was ultimately going to force um, confrontation and, and an end to this experiment. But that's okay. You know, these things that then become all the more precious because they risked what they did, but they were on uncertain ground and they were, you know, forging new territory, but it was not stable. There's a poster that you show um, at one point with a quote from Andy Warhol that says, you know, the, the Velvet Underground is so underground, they'll give you the bends, um, which I loved to see. And I, it's interesting, this idea of them being so underground, being so avant-garde, and that's kind of a selling point. And then their, you know, eventual uh, assimilation by the mainstream or just becoming a popular band who's still like, listening to them, um, it's still challenging their music. And I, I wonder if you see any parallel between your own trajectory as a filmmaker that you began in kind of a lo-fi mode and now, you know, you're given license to make these larger budget films, um, but you have been very uncompromising in the way you approach more mainstream work. Well, yeah, I mean, of course, I think the Velvet Underground become a model for a lot of artists and an example for trying not to compromise and trying to really stick to your vision. Even when the final record was moving in a different direction and sort of looking toward this extraordinary solo career that Lou Reed would usher, it would usher into for Lou Reed and would have within it some of the great rock and roll standards that I think he was always sort of hoping to write and which he would write and which would become sort of anthems of rock 
even stadium rock, you know, life. It's interesting, though, that Lou Reed, with all his success and all his ability to tap into larger, less dangerous kind of themes, never really maintained superstardom, you know, he didn't become Freddie Mercury and Queen. He didn't cross over into that level of success. I don't know if that's what he wanted. I feel like I've gained a lot of credibility and, and respect as a filmmaker. And, and I get to do what I want to do each time. Every time it's still a struggle. But I've also never really achieved massive commercial success either. And... Um, in some ways, I think it has maintained some freedom for me to not have to match that or use that as a model for what I'm going to do next. My films have had different... An interesting thing about my films, too, and maybe you could even say this about some of these artists, is they've attracted different audiences film by film. And the audience for Carol is not necessarily the same audience for Velvet Goldmine, is not necessarily the same audience for Safe. So, or for Poison, my first feature when I was sort of um, initiated in the culture of the new queer cinema movement. I like that. That's cool to me. I, you know, that, that in a way, I, I know cineasts see a through line in my work, but other audiences and audiences for Dark Waters were quite different from some of my other films. I, I, I don't mind. I think that's been an interesting, not necessarily planned for, but an interesting result of the films I've made. I wonder how you felt while watching all that archival footage and how you'd like the audience to come away feeling. I'm hearing you say there's different audiences for some of these different films. There's a lot of it that inspires joy and pleasure. And some of it inspires that's sort of mournful that we've lost something. And so I, I wonder how you felt and how you'd like the audience to feel as they leave a theater, or shut, shut their computer down, whatever it is. Well, we felt a continual state me and my editors, who I worked with so closely on this, we were all, I was cutting, they were cutting. I, I haven't had my hands on a movie like quite like this in so many years. It was such a pleasurable part of the process. I think we felt unbelievably inspired by what we were seeing and, and that we felt like we were putting it into a context and into a narrative form around a very well-loved band that was also going to serve to sort of preserve and contextualize this work, this cinema for audiences and <clears throat> that they would find access to it, but it could be in a sensual, visceral, fun manner that wasn't academic or didn't intimidate or make you feel like, oh my God, an experimental film is going to be really long and boring or something, but um, driven by the music we could enter into the joy and the um, experimentation that was so indicative of the time, but also serve to expose people to these films and these images. And, you know, when we got the, when the masters started to come in of the films based after we had been working with our temp versions of the material, we were just, the, you know, we were just dazzled by the beauty of it and the richness of it. And um, so it looks like nothing else, this movie, because of these artists, because of these filmmakers. So I feel so indebted to them, so incredibly humbled to have been able to use their work within my work. And 
provide a platform for people to enjoy this and be exposed to this. Well, Todd Haynes, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thanks, you guys. It was a pleasure. We've been speaking with Todd Haynes about his film, The Velvet Underground. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Thank you.